Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day team. I have a little treat for you before we launch into the podcast with Dan McPherson. This is Sam James. Uh, follow him on Instagram. I'm Sam James. It's I am Sam James, all one word. And I think you'll be blown away by this guy's talent. So just bear with me for a couple of minutes, not that you'll need to, and sit back and relax and have a listen to this. <laughs> On the weekend like usual Way off in the deep end like usual Yeah, this where they passed us They're doing too much Haven't done my taxes I'm too turned up Virgil got a paddock on my wrist going nuts Yeah, they call me slipping once Okay, so what? Someone hit your block up I tell you if it was us Man, the house in Rosewood This shit too blush Well, hello there. That was insane. If you're not a fan yet of Sam James, I think you probably are now. Um, Yeah, so that was Sam James. That was a cover of Life is Good featuring Drake. And I think you could say that he absolutely nails that. Check him out on Instagram. I am Sam James on Instagram. The dude is such an amazing talent. I want to thank him for allowing me to play that uh, for today, for the intro. Righto. Have you checked out the Warrior You podcast and training website yet? Go check it out. It's, uh, it's an easy jump in front of the computer, slam your little fat fingers on your keyboard and type in www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There are, well, let me think, podcasts, they're all there. The blog, two training programs for the Australian Defence Force. There's the $99 52-week physical preparation program that just goes on and on. That thing is just, everyone is jumping on it. It's awesome. Or the $300 complete cultural immersion skills-based training program. That includes the physical preparation program that I just talked about, plus navigation, field craft, resilience, nutrition, survival. It's perfect for self-paced development while you're stuck at home, while you're isolating, 
Alrighty. This week, the podcast is brought to you by my main sponsor, Aussie Strength. Who would have thought? Reach out to them to see how easy it is to set up your own home gym. Um, I have it on good advice that they have stock and are getting more in, so go check out their website and use the code WARRIORU for 10% off. And a special mention this week to Solento Organic Tequila. Now, full disclosure, my guest this week is a part owner of the company, and I'm only mentioning them to try and get a free bottle from him. Solento Organic Tequila. So this week, I'm talking to actor... Iron Man triathlete and all-around good bloke, Daniel McPherson. Fresh from starring as Sergeant Samuel White in the acclaimed international HBO Sky action series Strike Back, Dan describes the stress of living far away from home out of a suitcase and fully immersed in demanding roles for months at a time. If you've ever served in the Defence Force, this would not sound that unfamiliar to you, I would imagine. In fact, the similarities don't stop there. Dan gives us an understanding of how actors become exhausted in their trade. You know, I put it to him that it was a little bit like post-traumatic stress, coming back from that sort of high-tempo work, being completely immersed in something, action-packed, then you come back and there's just nothing and then you're in a state of depression over it. I guess PTSD isn't the right term, but it's you get what I'm what I'm putting down there. It's it's some sort of a separation anxiety. Anyway, Dan describes how triathlon was a source of strength and grounding for him, as it was for myself as well and for others that I know. Yeah, so when all the other events in his life would be uncertain, he had the weekly grind of run, swim, bike training just to fall back on. Then in the middle of the marathon of the Roth Ironman, he had the realisation that he had to finally choose between giving himself you know, completely to the sport he loves or actually chase after the career he wanted. The two of them weren't playing well together, I guess. We then get an amazing insight from one of Australia's most highly regarded leading actors, and that is nail everything that's in your control because by controlling the controllable and managing the variables, you have the best chance of success. And he is one of those guys that leaves no stone unturned when it comes to preparation. So with this as a backdrop, we then discuss intelligence. Well, interestingly enough, he's also, well, certifiable genius. Yeah, so we talk about intelligence, hard work and commitment, and the relationship between these and the distinct benefits of rounding out all three of those. We talk about leadership in the world of television and the arts, and Dan shares the discovery that an actor's expectations of themselves and then of others can often suppress the magic of creativity. And I think he, he really thinks deeply about the way that he's affected other actors by just his approach that he takes. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Anyway, I think you'll agree, this one is so good. Strap yourself in. Dan McPherson, how are you? Uh, I'm going okay. I'm going okay. It's, it's a weird time around the world for everybody, for everything and everyone. Um, but, uh, but I'm doing pretty well. My family's doing well. Family and friends are doing pretty well. It's great to talk to you, mate, finally. Just a quick question before we get into the coronavirus and parenting and triathlon and acting and strike back and neighbours and Robbie Williams and Holly Valance. And... <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> it's going to be a three-parter. <laughs> before, we, before we get into any of this, um, is it true that you're a Mason? No, it's not true. 
Oh, geez, that was a fizzer. <laughs> that's a that's the first time uh, that's the first time I heard that, but that's good. That's interesting. Where did you uh, where did you come across that? Oh no, I just made it up. I just thought maybe I'd. Be <laughs> I mean, look, I actually don't know enough about the Masons to uh, to have an opinion either way, but uh, I'm not sure what Wikipedia says because I've read some weird and wacky stuff about myself on Wikipedia over the years. But well, um, well, you're Illuminati, no, you're Illuminati, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was the same hey, thing. I do. <laughs> I just wait to uh, wait till we start getting into some like conspiracy conspiracy theories. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I've seen everything Dan Brown's ever put out, so you know, <laughs> I know all about it. Um, right. Yeah. What do you know? Hey. Um. So most of the audience probably knows that we know each other anyway, because I name drop mm-hmm. you all the time because that's the sort of dude I am. Um. And I'm just sort of <laughs> for those people that. Oh, and of course my um. One of, my, one of my close friends, Penny Rowbottom, has got a, an amazing uh, crush on you. And so every time I mention your name, she wants to send you videos. <laughs> oh, oh, hello. Oh, hi, Penny. How are you? Uh, I haven't received too many of those yet. Hey, um, but, uh, what, what don't, hey, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you, first of all, Dan McPherson, sort of the actor, who you are now, and then we'll just go on a bit of a time travel, maybe. Sure, man. Uh, my name is Daniel Donald McPherson. I am named after both of my grandparents. I was born in uh, Royal North Shore in uh, Sydney, Australia. I grew up in Cronulla. I left home to move to London when I was uh, I moved to Melbourne when I was 17 years old. I did uh, my first acting job. Uh, it was three years on Neighbours, nearly four years on Neighbours. Um, I'd never planned to be an actor. I got picked off the side of a road by an acting manager at a triathlon at Cornell. I was going to go uh, to New South Wales Institute of Sport uh, for triathlon as a junior. Uh, then I was going to go and study economics at Sydney Uni. Uh, didn't make either of those and uh, went off in this weird and wild acting career, uh, which uh, 22 years later I'm uh, still doing. I turned 40 on Anzac Day. Really? This year. Still dressed like I'm about 18. My beard is turning grey and I've pretty much been uh, an entertainment industry nomad for the best part of, of 22, 23 years. Uh, I've been living in the US for the last nearly 10 years, but the last five years particularly when my acting career um, finally started to, to click into gear in the US. I've been based in a different country, if not two or more every year for the last five years. And uh, I just just finished a series Strike Back, which we'll talk about last year in November. I spent most of last year in Croatia came back to Sydney uh, for Christmas and then I moved to Ireland to start a new series in February. And then that series, I just by chance had a little production break and came home to, to visit the family. Mm. And, and that's when uh, the world shut down, lockdown, isolation, quarantine began to happen. So I'm, I'm coming to you at the moment from Sydney where I'm, I'm at home uh, full circle 22 years later, which is a bit of a, a bit of a shock. Yeah, so much to unpack even in that, and even in the, <laughs> even in the in the time that I've known you, there's been it's feel it feels like I've known you forever because in the time that I have known you, so much has happened. Yeah, we'll talk about Strike Back in a bit because I think it's I think yeah. it's, I think it's awesome, yeah. dude. And we'll talk about how it's how actors are probably um, in some in some cases actors probably aren't given the credit they deserve for what they immerse themselves in. And I want to unpack that mm-hmm. a bit later, and people might now at home be groaning like, oh yeah, sure, but I can. Add a whole new perspective to that. I think. What would you be doing now if you weren't an actor? If you hadn't been plucked out of the streets of, you know, by a talent scout to go on Neighbours, like what would Dan <laughs> McPherson be doing now? I kind of think I would have ended up in 
some kind of world of sports marketing or, or sort of sports health, wellness business, you know, in that kind of world, just combining, as I've got older, I've realized that for, for someone who works in a, in a world of the arts, I've got a pretty good business brain and my dad always had a pretty good business brain and and um, so I would have ended up combining something that I love which would have been sport or, or some kind of health and fitness lifestyle in, in a probably in a business sense I probably would have stayed in Sydney um, you know I left Sydney at 17 years old and, and hence you know so, so I grew up in Sydney but in my growing up in Melbourne I moved to Melbourne with my two best mates and we rented a house um, in Melbourne for three years and mm. you know I'd, I'd been out of home for three or four years before I was 21 and moved to London. So um, I probably stayed in Sydney, um, you know, work or triathlon or Ironman or something maybe would have taken me up to the Sunshine Coast where I, I kind of gravitated anyway. Um, but I, I'm sure I probably would have made it overseas at some point, but not in the capacity that my career has taken me so much so that I kind of don't have a base at the moment, um, which is something I'm in the process of addressing. And, and, um, one of the handy phrases in the last couple of years has been there is a gift in everything. Mm. And as, uh, as my show gets put on hiatus and, and um, as, as the world is forced to, to slow down right now, it's given me a chance to, to sit down with Zoe and, and my family and, and kind of work out what we want to do and where we want to be and, and where we do need to be based because it's been very easy to just follow the work around the world for the last couple of years. But uh, it's getting a little bit long in the tooth, mate, when you can't, can't work out where the pants are that match your jacket, which suitcase they're in, in which garage, in which country, which I was doing at 21, which I don't want to be doing at 41. You know, <laughs> it's like shit. Yeah, living out of a deployment trunk. Yeah, it's, it's you know, not dissimilar, you know, and it's funny, you know, I, I kind of, I've noticed it a couple of times. I've come back from strike back or come back from working away and, you know, we've got a, a nice, a nice living space, depending on where we're living, whether it's, we, we do have a home in, in Queensland and, and have an apartment here in Sydney. And it's funny, no matter where I end up, I still have a suitcase on the ground and take up the same square meterage, whether I've got four bedrooms or two or one, or whether I'm at my mum's, whatever. It's like, I've just become very self-sufficient of living out of an open suitcase on the floor and it's at the end of the bed. And that's, uh, that's it. <clears throat> I think it was last year. Maybe it was you year before maybe it was last year i went and stayed at your place up in queensland for a little bit and i remember mm -hmm. i remember walking past your bedroom and there's that there's a suitcase on the floor and there's like a pair of flip-flops next to it a, a um a gym towel some gym shorts some lifting <laughs> shoes and a uh, and a t-shirt or or two and then i went upstairs to go and have a shower because we just had a workout yeah. and i looked in my room and there's a suitcase open on the floor <laughs> a pair of flip-flops some lifting shoes <laughs> Like we'd both <laughs> right, so, and you know, you know how much living space is in that house. I mean, you could spread out everywhere. I don't think I mean, I've had that house for ten years. I think I've unpacked my suitcase there yeah. and hung up clothes on hangers once. Yeah, yeah. and you know, as you as you know, when you, you shift shift around a lot, that you you really become streamlined in what you need and what you want. And I've discovered that if I can have some salt water, a decent coffee, and somewhere to work out, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, you know, the rest the rest will fall into place. Yeah, fair cool. Mm. So let's talk Iron Man just quickly. You, you mm. I was in, I was living in Cronulla at the same time as you. We worked out. I yeah. was just down the down the road there. We were at Northies at the same time, and we worked out. <laughs> we worked out that our training schedules were pretty similar, although you were a bit more serious. But I, I would run along the Esplanade every every other day doing you know fart like training and the, and the like. Back in those days, those those sort of sprint and Olympic triathlon days, just how important was that to you as a person? That sport. 
like I was playing prop. I was a little fat kid. I was playing in the front row in a rugby team. My dad's a Kiwi and he wanted me to play rugby. And I was playing soccer when I was younger and I was the goalkeeper because I couldn't run. So I realized that that wasn't going to be much fun for me. So what it did for me throughout from the age like 11 to 16 was it actually gave me an outlet outside of school. I didn't quite, I didn't really enjoy my school so much. I went to Sydney Boys High in the city and great academic school, made great friends. Just didn't really, for whatever reason, just didn't, didn't gel in there as much with the, with the cool kids and, and whatever. And with, you know, and had my life was outside it. My life was back in Cronulla. My, my life was surfing in Cronulla and doing triathlons and, and swimming at Carrenbach pool every afternoon. And my best mates were the guys I trained with. Um, and also growing up watching Greg Welsh and Craig Alexander and Chris McCormack and, and McKeeley Jones, yeah. you're all at the club, you know, you go training and, or you go to the pool and, and you're in the lane next to all these guys yeah. as a, as a junior looking over and there's Welshy doing his laps and yeah. you, you go to a club run on a Wednesday night and there's, you know, multiple world champions who are just, you know, and then all you know, drinking VB twisties twist stops at, you know, after the run and jumping and going out of bars. I mean, that's what I grew up doing. You, you know, know, you know who wasn't, Drinking VB twisties, and I'm <laughs> Brad, Brad Bevan because he was training and taking it seriously. Mate, he was, he was what a crock. He was I, a great athlete. Used to see him but, up in, uh, used to see him up in Townsville every now and again on training camps, running up and down yeah. Mount Stewart and yeah. or, or, or on the Esplanade. Um, just incredible. He was is, isolated, focused, yeah. and there was a difference because there was a kind of an aura around the, the guys and girls out of Cronulla. That they could. Greg was the only one that could match it with him. Oh, totally. And, and only over those enduros or, or double distances, you know, when, when Welshie really went hard at winning Hawaii, you know, lost that top end speed that Brad had and, and, and a couple of the others. I remember at Olympic time, Simon Whitfield was flying. Um, there was a couple of them. Ben Bright was flying there for a season or two, you know, going back in the, in the quarry days of the triathlon. So anyway, what it did, what it did to me and, and unknowingly was know that Ironman eventually was in my veins and I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to race Hawaii. That was almost my childhood goal to go and yeah. race Kona because that's what was me at my purest form before I started acting and, and ended up in the acting industry. And it was always a case of I'll see how long acting goes for. And if it ends, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back home and just go back to my other life. Yeah. You know, acting is this, is this pathway that I've been gifted by chance. And even then, like I, when I met this guy at the triathlon in Cornell, who said, come and be an actor. I'm an acting manager. I never rang him. He, he found out through my rugby coach, my parents' phone number, rang my parents' home phone number, 95237176 back in the glory days in Cronulla uh, on a Tuesday night at nine o'clock. said, hi, Zan McPherson. I spoke to my parents and spoke to me. So we met your son. He was supposed to, I met your son. He was supposed to ring us. He never did. And so mum spoke to him and said, oh, this acting manager wants to go in and, and have a meeting. Hmm. And it turns out that Stephen and his boss, Mark Morrissey, um, were some of the most sort of well-renowned acting managers in Australia. So, so I always sort of viewed this acting life slightly different to my real life. Hmm. Um, and that was something I had to reconcile later in my career, that it wasn't, it wasn't this novelty life that I was just, pursuing for a couple of, it was my life and there was a point where it became my life. Um, but triathlon always gave me something to go back to or, or was like, felt like that was the real me in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways for a lot of years. Um, and hence I did go back to it um, when I was living in Los Angeles and I did go back to it uh, when I moved back from the UK. And so subsequently went back and, and 
moved back to Cronulla in my mid twenties after living in London, um, moved into right on the Esplanade there with my dad as my parents had just been just separated and, um, started training again. So then raced, uh, I was going to race second year first or second year at Port Macquarie, but I had a, a bike stack down the national park. Um, and you know, broke my collarbone, broke my ribs, did all, all that stuff. Um, ended up in Sutherland hospital and then, so race port and then I raced Busso later that year. So Busso maybe 2006, maybe, mm-hmm. um, 9.42, first Ironman, uh, went over and raced Port Macquarie in April. That is moving, isn't it? 9.40. Well, look for a kid that I'd only signed up six weeks before. If I could run as well as I could swim bike, I would have been a great athlete. I just couldn't run. Mm. Um, or, or I couldn't run over 25 K really, mm. unfortunately was the, was the, um, was the issue. Is that just volume? So, just didn't have the volume. Uh, maybe I, you know, looking back in hindsight, I just didn't have the strength or the strength endurance. Mm. I just, um, going, going now, having changed my attitude towards training and strength training in particular, um, working on, and particularly in the last five years, just looking at lifting and CrossFit and, and developing, some strength and some size in, in bits and pieces. I, I just realized that I just didn't have the strength through mm. glutes, hamstrings, core, my back to be able to run or teach a non-natural runner to run a fast marathon off the bike. Mm. I'd do things differently now. I'd love to go back. And mate, I have been rambling for a while, but the answer to your question is those years gave me a strength to pursue acting, knowing that I could always go back to a life outside of acting, which was move home to Cronulla, move home with my parents, go back and go back to plan A, which was go to Sydney uni or university in South Wales or wherever I was applying mm. to at the time, mm. do a degree and go back and, and hang out with my mates. Yeah. The, the sort of phase two of, you know, triathlon 2.0 was the Ironman years. And I ended up racing in Hawaii and China. And so I did what I did, Port Mac, Busso Port Mac, New Zealand, China, Hawaii, and then I went back for one more at Roth. So you raced a lot of so, halves and raced. So the you US. managed Kona, then you you managed to get to Kona. And- yeah, I was I was doing. Um, I just like I missed out that first year in Busso. I missed out by like one or two roll down slots. Um, I, I missed out again in Port Mac by a slot or two. Um, went over, got really fit ten years ago, and oh, she's was it now twelve years ago, uh, and went to race. So I'm in New Zealand swam a 49.10 was 12th out of the water with the pros thought I was fit enough to ride my bike with the pros blew up was drinking coca-cola out of the bottle at 120k on the bike and I just wish in hindsight I wish I was more mentally mature as an Ironman racer then because even with the wheel the wheel, even when the wheels had fallen off I could have still salvaged a, a good race yeah but I you know you know I just wasn't I didn't have the wisdom to to mm. realize that and so even with a four-hour marathon came in at 10 hours 10 and only missed its Kona slot by 12 minutes or something mm. because I chucked all my toys out of the pram mm. halfway through the marathon and went, screw this, I'm going to walk home in the rain and hug my mother mm. when actually I could, have, I could have salvaged a good race in hindsight. Mm. So when I went to race uh, China, so I learned a lot from that. And then so the year later, which was my next Ironman, I, um, I was working City Homicide in Melbourne. I only had two weeks off that year on that show. So I found the only Ironman that fell in that two weeks was Ironman China. Um, so I signed up for that and um, trained really hard for that and just knew there were two slots in my age group. And so I just did whatever I had to do to, um, to, to get 
top two, you really. And so I had a, a buddy of mine from Cronulla who came steaming past. Uh, again, actually had a, had a really good swim, was swimming with beat Rasmus Henning out, you know, Olympic racer and pro men's winner out around the first couple of cans and then followed him out of the water. And then he was like fifth or sixth or something out of the water with, after the mass start, which was pretty handy. But learnt my learnt my lesson when my, one of my really good buddies came flying past me on the bike. He's like, come on, D-Mac, let's go. And you can just tell there'd been a massive thunderstorm overnight. It was already like 36, 38 degrees. I was like, we've got hours of racing left out here. Yeah. Just something doesn't feel right to me. Like it's just, I can just sense it's humid, it's hot. Sure enough, it was like 46 degrees or something that day in China, 44, 45 degrees. And um, it was one of the biggest dropout rates in, in Ironman history. And Charlotte Paul ran a 335 marathon. She won the, she had the fastest marathon of the day. Rasmus Henning won the men's race and he walked from 30K. Um, and I managed a four hour 50 marathon, went 11.01 and won my age group by 50 minutes. Yeah, right. You know? So it was one of those crazy days, but got my slot and then trained through a Melbourne winter while working seven days a week on Dancing with the Stars and City Homicide and, um, and made it to Kona and raced Kona and went around there in 10 hours, 20 yeah. um, off the back of a Melbourne winter and working seven days a week. And I was really happy and that pretty much burnt me out for a couple of years. And I uh, put my bike in the shed and moved to America. Do you remember, uh, yeah, man. do you remember Macca, Chris McCormack? Of course. Yeah. I, I came out of the water just behind Chris McCormack on a half iron man. Oh really? Last time I ever saw him. Really? So you so you could swim. <laughs> <laughs> last time yeah. I ever last time I yeah. ever saw him and uh, and he had two flat tires I heard. Oh really? <laughs> he's still yeah, right. be, and he's still beat <laughs> he still beat me on the right. Mate, we, we grew up in such a such a rich a, a, you know, a golden age yeah. of, of triathlon and triathlon talent and mm. And I was fortunate enough then to sort of go between Sydney and, and the Sunshine Coast mm. and even the States. You know, I was fortunate enough to, to do a lot of my training in Sydney with on the bike. You know, I used to swim with a really good bunch in Sydney and, and mostly, more so with Craig Alexander um, and, so, and some really good uh, age group athletes um, up, in, up in Queensland, uh, Belinda and Justin Granger and, and Luke McKenzie and, and whoever's in town at the time were, yeah, Pete Jacobs and, and you know, occasionally down for dinner when he's in town. On the, on the show. Yeah, he's an interesting cat, Pete. I mean, yeah, lovely guy. We went we went on a we went on a little training camp at Threadbow fifteen years ago before training camps in Threadbow were, were fun or or the cool thing to do. And it mm. was myself and Pete Jacobs and Jason Shortus and uh, and a and a buddy of mine, Jared. You know, he's a I think it was a maybe even a world duathlon champion age group at one point um so we would yeah we've, we've done a few little bits and pieces over the years and travel around over the years as a, as a elite kind of amateur you know and mm. like most things in my life i was one foot in one foot out and yeah was it, of, is it 20, uh, was it is it 20 hours a week, Dan, to, to train for an Ironman back then, to be serious in Kona, to go sub 10 hours? Are you talking 20 uh, hours? No, I, I was more. I was like 25 at least. Yeah. And you're managing um, that with? Just uh, with, yeah, I was, so I was working Monday to Friday on City Homicide, which is about, you know, 7 till 7, 6.30 or 6.30 and training at night. And occasionally before I'd get into work really early and just even get 45 minutes on the bike. But the weekends were the gnarly ones. You'd, I'd finish work on a Friday night go straight to the pool at MSAC. So I lived in St Kilda in Melbourne. I was filming at the Channel 7 Studios in South Melbourne. And between that was Albert Park. So I'd go straight to the pool, swim 3K 
Friday night, get up, go down to Cafe Racer, meet Mitch Anderson and the and the giant bunch. We hammered a Portsea and back 180k in five hours. Um, get off the bike, uh, run off the bike 45 an hour if I could. Get home. That would then be like quarter to one, one o'clock. I'd get picked up at about quarter past one to go to work to rehearse Dancing with the Stars. At 1.30, I've been a production meeting, dancing with the stars, reading a script, seeing stars, uh, just like, what the fuck? Um, and then you'd get through this sort of an hour production meeting and then go, okay, we'll go and load this and we're going to rehearse the dancers. So we'll be with you in an hour and a half, two hours. So I'd then just walk straight to my dressing room, shovel down whatever food was there, pass out for an hour. There'd be a knock on the door, wake me up. Okay, go down to rehearse and you'd rehearse for four hours live TV, you know, for, for the following night. Yeah. Rehearse all the songs, all the dances, all the camera moves. And you had to be on. That's a lot of brain power to, to sort of take all that in. Um, then I'd go to MSAC again, swim another three or four K that night, get up Sunday morning, ride another hundred. Um, I wouldn't run off the bike Sunday because I'd, because I'd have to have a bit of energy because I had to do three hours of live telly Sunday afternoon. Then I get picked up at lunchtime, go back in, rehearse the whole show again. And then Sunday night was, you know, live, whatever we were, 6.30, 7 o'clock, 7.30, two or three hours. And then you do live telly. Monday morning, wake up, smashed, but, um, and we'd go back to work at City Homicide. So You gave me a good um, segue there, mate, because um, you said brain power in there. And, and people might, people probably don't know this about you, but you're certifiably a genius. <laughs> I think I've damaged. I think I've damaged a few since I've been tested, mate. But, uh, but that is true, apparently, right? Apparently, apparently, yeah. I was I was pretty smart as a kid. We moved. My parents packed up and moved us to the UK when I was mm. uh, six or seven, seven years old, eight years old, and um, we got tested for Mensa at school over there. And mm. I was the only one that I was the only one that got in, and I thought it was maybe because I was Australian or something. But, but apparently, having, I was, so I was having, pretty cluey. So having said that. And and mm. and knowing you and, and knowing that you are reasonably cluey, I guess. Um, do you think that do you think that a lot of your sort of success has come about through being being intelligent, or do you think it's come out from just being a hard worker, or do you think there's a the mixture of the two? Absolutely, a mixture of the two. Triathlon gave me a good Ironman, particularly gave me a good lesson in and in triathlon and sport. Because you'd see these guys who were the most supremely naturally talented athletes. Mm. And very rarely were they the guys that were still on top of the podium three years, five years, ten years later. Mm. With the exception of Jan Macker. Mm. Um maybe Rinnie, MJ was, you know, she was, but, but there was a couple that you were freakish athletes as juniors and went on. But oftentimes it was the athletes that were second, third or fourth that had to work two, three, four times harder because they didn't have the natural ability mm. at the same level as some of these like freaks had it, you know, and I use that in a positive sense, not a negative sense. Um, and, and so for me in the entertainment industry, it was like, well, I'm not, I, I didn't grow up acting. I didn't grow up wanting to be an actor, but I know you can learn anything. 
And I know that you can, but you have to have the intelligence to be able to observe, observe and learn the lessons. And, and that's observing, that's a self-awareness. You need to have the intelligence, the emotional intelligence to understand you, yourself. You need to be um, able to spot the talent and the hard work in other people, perhaps. I don't know. It's, 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 it's an interesting thing. It's definitely, I'm, oh, oh. it's definitely, the answer to your question is it's definitely a mixture. Yeah. It's well, definitely a mixture and how you apply that intelligence. It's interesting for me to hear you say that and, and in the way that you've said it as well, because I know you from a one, one dimension really, which is being mm. a friend of you and hanging out and talking about deep philosophical mm. shit. Mm. But, but I also have not as close a friends as you, but friends who know you. Mm who worked with you or work with you, who've been able to provide mm-hmm. me with a 360-degree review on you, I guess. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And, yeah, and they all say that there's a different Dan McPherson. When, when the game's on, the game's fucking on. And it's like mm. you are deeply immersed in that and have the highest expectation of other people around you, so much so that they're like, got to get this right for Dan. And these are professionals. These are people who, oh, wow. yeah. these are, people who are professional in that, in that role and they're yeah. like, I don't want to let Dan down here. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting for me to hear wow. that because it's a type of, you know, A, I think that what that says about you is, yeah, okay, and it's a great lesson for people listening at home, kids listening at home, whatever, you know, be the hardest worker in any room. It, it helps the fact that you're super powered in, in, the, in, the, in, in the whole intelligence space, right? That helps. I mean, that's massive. Yeah. Yeah. But if you didn't yeah. have that, if you didn't have that natural intelligence, just be the hardest worker in every room. And the, the other mm. thing it says to me is that, there's a type of leadership there that you're showing that you've either learnt through the years through osmosis or 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 was always resident. And I'd be mm. interested to hear about leadership in the film industry and in acting in mm. particular. I mean, is there a natural pecking order or is there people um, who are who are identified to Yeah, to that's that's something that I've that's something that I've just come to understand in the last five or 10 years performance wise, because for many years I didn't believe that I was good enough or good enough an actor to, to mix it with the best and, and, and to be able to work with the best. And uh, so I did a film with Shana Bess, an Australian director called uh, named Shana Bess with a film called Infinity in 2013. I hadn't, I'd left Sea Homicide in 2009. I hadn't worked in an acting space for four years. And no one would give the, the host of Dancing with the Stars an acting job. And I don't blame them because he'd spent a lot of time hosting live television and big shiny floor shows and training for triathlon instead of acting. Yeah. And then turns around at 33 and goes, hey, I want to be a Hollywood leading man. Well, get in line, pal. You know, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, but... Shana Best was the first one to take a risk on me or take a punt on me in this very immersive style of acting to make this science fiction film. And that cast had Luke Ford, who's multiple AFI award-winning actor and one of the most vicious, um, passionate um, actors that I've ever worked with in what he demands from everybody else. And he basically will not, he will not act with you if you're not acting with him at a standard that, forces him to react in a way is truthful and honest in that, in that moment. And that was a great lesson for me. And that was supported. That was supported on that step. 
Luke Hemsworth, Brent Foster, Tess Horbrick, um, all of whom have gone on to have incredible international careers. Louisa Mignon, Grace Huang. Um, I know I'm forgetting a lot of people because it's a big cast, but uh, they've all gone on to work very well. And that was a sort of a seminal moment in all of our careers to work in an environment that basically locked you in a warehouse in Gladesville, which was basically our studio. We had two sound stages, which I think are now at Bunnings, and we built everything in there. We lived upstairs in the converted offices. I lived on a mattress at a very Spartan perhaps military style. I had a single mattress on the floor. I had a coffee machine, a lamp, a set of free weights. And I would finish the day, go in, have a beer with the crew up there, wipe the fake blood off, go to sleep, get up, have two coffees, do my weights, whatever, go back down onto the spaceship and, and it was, you know, we off we went. And we did that for eight weeks. And that taught me, it just opened up a whole new place for how I could work, but also how that changed the way I worked and it changed my belief in myself. So fast forwarding two or three years and having done all the work in between to go from Infinity to then to go to like a little guest role in another film to then lead another film to then do a guest role in an American show and then another guest role in an American show and then finally get the role in Strike Back to be one of the leads. And by three years into the series, there's only three seasons in, there's three leads and the responsibility that comes with then being number one on the call sheet um, on a on an American TV series or any TV series or any set now is one that I take with great pride and great responsibility. And that is not only is it my job to perform and lead a cast and a crew uh, in terms of, sorry, I'll go, not only is it my job to do my performance to the utmost of my ability and, and to, to the character and, and the story. There's these, I believe there's these unwritten expectations with, you step on set and you dictate the attitude on set. You dictate the work ethic on set. You lead by example from the front. You lead by example on the relationship that exists on set between cast and crew with every one of your crew, whether they're the head DP or the, the kid doing work experience, you know, making coffee for the director. You're there. I believe that a film or television set works the absolute best collaboratively that if you think, A, you're a star, B, you're the only one that everybody should be listening to, um, C, that you're better off as an individual than you are as a collective collaboration, you're deluded. Yeah. And, and that it's, um, it's a team effort. But teams need good leaders in every sense. And, and that leader can change. There's, there's got to be, I believe in a collaboration, there's got to be some ebb and flow, um, and, and particularly in the world of film. But what that infinite experience taught me and what I guess I developed, this has rubbed some people the wrong way recently. This has made, this probably made my career more difficult than anything. Maybe not. Is that I then expect everybody that I work with in a lead capacity to work as hard as I do. I will push them harder than people perhaps want to be pushed. And the danger is when you step on a, on a set and you have an expectation of what you believe your performance should be, what a scene should look like. What, if you have an expectation of what you believe the outcome should be in an artistic collaborative situation, i.e. a film set, TV set, uh, ste stepping up to an easel to do a painting, then I, I, I think you're missing some of the magic 
because I think the magic mm. comes from the freedom mm, mm, mm. and the surprise and the spontaneity. And that comes from the collaboration. And so a lot of, sometimes my leadership is about pushing people beyond their own expectations outside their own comfort zone, because I believe that's where the magic is. Yeah. Um, it, and some people really resist that. Mm. And, and that makes things hard, but I'll only ever do it for the good of the project. I don't yeah. do it for the hell of it. I don't do it to, it's for the, it's for the good of what we're doing, because I believe that perhaps 22 years into this industry, that 22 years of working nonstop around the world in every conceivable capacity, the entertainment industry has to offer that finally at age 40, I kind of go, well, I start to think I know yeah. what I'm doing now. Yeah, so Joel, Joel um, Jackson said and it's, something really similar last week, and I've heard Merrick Watt say something really similar as as well. You know, and they and I think that it's interesting. People probably don't understand that in 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 acting and and so these celebrities, they're consummate professionals most of the time in in the areas that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They're in. They take it really seriously. And you were talking about you know, living on a mattress for eight weeks upstairs. You know, yeah. when I saw you come back from Strike Back, not this season, but the season before, um, you know, I came up and we, we sat around in um, up in Queensland together. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, you look like the way I look coming back from Afghanistan from, mm. a, de- from a deployment. And not from a yeah. – and, you know, and I've never had post-traumatic stress. But – and I don't mean yeah. it. I don't mean it like that. I mean, just bloody tired. And tired because yeah. you've been engaged for 24 hours a day totally. for, yeah. for, for, for what was nearly six months at that stage, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, I think um, I think I, I had post-traumatic stress disorder in some capacity. Mm. I've been very careful working on Strike Back and particularly you know, portraying um, a character in the, in, um, in the American military that I never, never in a million years – I mean, we do all the training with all the guys in America and, you know, all the, everybody watches the show around the world. But, you know, I mean, very careful about the way I speak about it so that I never, ever for a second think I believe to know what it's like going into conflict or, conflict or combat. Right. I'm, a, I'm an actor. I pretend, yeah. you know, but you can Act read as many Gary. books, talk to as many people you know and, and kind of, you know, get your take on it. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the disclaimer. I don't ever like pretend to be within a, a football field's distance of knowing what yourself and a lot of, you know, your, your now, your mates and great mates and, and people you've served with and people I know all around the world. I, I can't pretend to fathom the enormity of, of the experience. Um, but, but that said, I've tried to give my interpretation of it on, on, um, on screen for a couple of years, but also doing it as much justice and giving it as much, the utmost respect that I can as well. 
Um, yeah, but there's a really good scene. There's a really good scene in last <laughs> in last season. It's one of my favourite scenes, actually, where um, you're running back from a car doing a pistol mag change, and there's an ex- <laughs> that someone throws a grenade, and obviously there's some there's some second order accelerants in something in, inside yeah. a you know like you know foo gas or something yeah. like that. Um, inside a building and the whole building blows up and you watch you watch you you watch your head almost disappear down through your shoulders down through <laughs> like you can you can see that you were like holy shit that was close and I remember well, also because our, our VFX our SFX department they, they had a few close calls you know they would say that oh it's only three gas bottles and they're going to explode and they're going to go X metres high and four metres wide they never did like we were standing in the desert in Jordan in season one and they're like oh this Range Rover is going to explode it was this big Hungarian special effects guy, and I think Don Haney, who's who's played Adrisi, one of the bad guys in season one, Aussie actor, uh, who actually is Alin Somawada's husband, um, who plays. Oh, all right. Um, yeah, yeah. So he played Adrisi in season one. Uh, they were standing there taking photos of this first big explosion, this black Range Rover, and a bit of the engine just goes whizzing past their heads, like flaming past their head, and the big Hungarian SFX guy turns around and was like. <laughs> that was close. Yes. We're like, okay, strike backs. Uh, Take on a new level. Strike backs going to be like pretty much on the edge. And so, yeah, when when we they they would always tell us where things were going to blow up, but I never believe them. So yeah, yeah. and I, I know exactly the moment it was the end of the gauntlet scene where we'd done yeah. the big one shot and we're running away and the grenades so blown up and then suddenly one of the huts is blown up and I'm yeah. doing a little sneaky mag change, pistol change on the way out. Thought oh. I was looking really cool until I nearly shat myself. But those, you know, and, and that's one thing that I, I, I reached out to you initially and said, hey, I've got to tell you, I'm pretty impressed with the weapon handling drills of, of the three of you, you know, that they are realistic. I mean, passing magazines from one to the other by the flick of the boots probably not yeah. something that we generally do. <laughs> but, um, but pri- primarily... You've got to kill the time somehow, man. <laughs> primarily the changeover drills were good and you could see that you had been trained and it reminds me of... You know, one of the Hollywood actors from Speed. What was his name? Oh, Keanu, oh. who's doing John Wick. But, yeah. Uh, Keanu Reeves. And I saw him go through a live fire demonstration. Yeah, out there at Taran Tactical, which we, we trained out there. Yeah, yeah. he was legitimately good. Like legitimately yeah. good enough to go, yeah, yeah that, would be, that would be hard work up against someone like yeah. that. Yeah, we, we, trained, we trained out there a lot. I actually, actually handled uh, Keanu's weapons out there, had a, mm. had a little play around with his. He's got a really tricked up sort of John Wick AR-15, yeah, and a couple of really nice pistols. But yeah, we trained out there as well. So we 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 I mean we inherited this show um, from the previous previous cast. You know, they had a bit of time off air. So Sullivan, Stapleton, Phil Winchester, Shelley Luke's, Robson Green, um, and they set the benchmark. And yeah. that was just the benchmark that we had to based on um, Chris Ryan's books. Yeah, yeah. Who I've never I actually never met. He came and did a cameo in this final season, but I didn't I didn't meet him. Mm. But um. So I can't can't tell you much about him, but he's but he's in there somewhere. Mm. But yeah, look, we, that was something we, as you know, it just takes time, and you can try and you can try and get it up to speed in three or four months, but nothing compares to having you know a firearm in your hand or doing you know um, just dry drills nonstop for two years or three years, mm-hmm. and suddenly. You know, by season three, you're having to slow down mag changes because they're too quick for camera. Mm. You know, and my goal, my goal, my goal going into that was always um, Val Kilmer in Heat. You know, it's that great scene when they're doing the bank shootout in the street in LA, and he's and he's got the old M16 at the time, 
and he does a bit of a, a mag change behind the car and yeah. then on the film buddies were like oh that's the best one so all right well that's the benchmark and yeah uh, you know i think we got this so we, we trained a lot around the world we trained in in the u.s um uh with marine veterans and some navy seal guys and mm. we got sent out to kasodek in in jordan to train yeah, cool. with jordanian special forces we had hungarian armorers on set we had british military advisors uh then we had some south africans come on set actually the croatians last year were great there's a lot of lot of um, really good guys in the armory and and, and weapons mm. sort of teams that really gave us a bunch of a bunch of interesting stuff and mm. we were just able to sort of pick and choose what worked and what didn't. But even just going back to your, your previous question about when I saw you last, like the the PTSD or the exhaustion that comes with working at that level for such a prolonged period of time is where the like when you have this you, you're working on not a lot of sleep you trying to do your, your acting, your, your weapons handling, your stunts, your stunt fighting. There's so many, so many areas that go into filming a scene on this show. Mm. Plus to stay in shape so you're going to the gym before and after work. In that season when I saw you were filming in Malaysia and Southeast Asia, so it was debilitatingly hot, mm. you know, in, in all your kit, especially when suddenly we're filming it as though we're in, they were filming it as though it was Russia at one point. So the guys had to be in full snow kit, you know, in Malaysia in August, mm. you know, and it was like, kill people. And then, so then to, but then also just to suddenly pack up, oh, it finishes on a Friday and suddenly you're home on a Monday. And I remember I, I made the mistake of going straight to another job and, and signing up to come back and do bad mothers, but to go, suddenly in an instant you go to bed one day and you wake up the next and your entire world has changed you're speaking yeah. in a different accent the people that you see around you are different you're living in a different bedroom you're eating different food the people are speaking different language the, the skin color of the people is completely different the smells are different it, it's mm, yeah. you just wake up and life is different and when your brain is that fried from working at such a high level for such a long time Mm. It bit me on the ass. Mm, mm. It really, really bit me on the ass that year, mm. um, and and it took me a long time to get through that, mm. and and because I wasn't able to recover because I went straight into eight weeks of bad mothers, which you know would never do again, not because of the show, just because I'd need a break, and then so I didn't really recover from Malaysia until mm. nearly halfway through our time in Croatia, mm. like summer, and when I was like. Oh, okay, cool. I'm backfiring at full gas. But you watch the first four episodes of, of this season and it's on air at the moment. I was fucked. Yeah. I was out of shape. I was exhausted. I was I was just I was just off off the I was fucked. You know, I was dragging myself through day after day on set until finally the sun came back out in Croatia and I got back into my groove and I got back into just back into my head and, and back into my body and Oh man, but it was, that was a wild, like six to 12 months, you know? And, and, yeah. and, uh, it's only been actually this, this little time now where we've got a bit of a hiatus from the job that I've been doing in, in back in Ireland and which I was supposed to maybe come home for a week or two. I've now been home for three or four months. It's the break I didn't get after strike back. So, and it's um, interesting, isn't it? We've got, yeah, this I'm enjoying, global, uh, this global I'm enjoying quarantine. We've got this global pandemic and it's like 
actually everyone needed it almost. And I, I don't mean it like that, but everyone needed a break. I mean, everyone I'm talking oh, to is like, thank God for this. I've been, you know, staying at home for four weeks. I mean, I hope it all ends up being okay on the other side of it. Obviously, the world's changed and everything's going to change. But, yeah. but like, yeah. I'm just amazed at how many people yeah. were burnt out, me included. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you didn't realise just how fast the world was spinning. And that's yeah. from everything from the 15 forms of social media that are on your, on your phone as soon as you wake up in the morning to the emails that come in at every time zone yeah. to the expectations of friends and your family and yourself and yeah. whatnot. So I think just, look, obviously this is a, a really challenging time for a lot of people. You know, there's mm. a high unemployment. I know our friends being friends and family um, losing job jobs, uh, worrying financially. There's mm. a lot of uncertainty in those in those circles and, and people being affected, not to mention those who are sick and watching family members. Yeah. Ill. So not, not to be flippant about the, the mm. bad stuff that is going on because of COVID-19, but the, the, the opposite effect of that is, or the flip side of that is there's this pause in the world. It's, you know, hey, it's time out, everybody. We've got to deal with humanity. We've got to deal with our health. We've got to deal with, our well-being. We're doing something that is uniting us as humans, which is, hey, stay inside, wash your hands, look after each other, because if you don't, other people will die. And I think that kind of unification, that global unification, um, that global empathy is a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree, mate. What are you working on after this or what are you working on next? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm working on a sci-fi series in, uh, in Ireland at the moment, which hasn't yet been announced, but I, um, I was able to get that job just after strike back. So mm. I knew that I had some time, some time off over Christmas and I, and I went back to work again a little bit too soon. So again, mm. this, this break is good. And then I really have been, um, getting to that point where I just wanted to start telling my own stories and my own bits and pieces. So I've been working mm. away on a couple of couple of projects in the film and television space. Mm. Most things now looking at the television space rather than the film space. Mm. And, mm. and that's been sort of compounded by this global pandemic where cinemas are shut and, and as if the, the world of consuming film and television is hasn't been changing rapidly enough. Uh, it's going to change even more. Yeah, I'm sure out, out the other side of this. So, so yeah. for me, television is what I know. It's something that I've I've, I've obviously been involved in since I was 17 years old. Mm. Um, and it's time to start sort of telling my own stories. And and I want to come back home to Australia to do that mm. and spend more time here. And so we're dealing with, with that at the moment. And, and that's a really satisfying uh, thing for me to, mm. because it doesn't, you know, a, as you may have picked up, I, I only know sort of two speeds and that's mm. zero and a hundred. Mm. And if I'm working in front of a camera, it's getting a hundred and mm. something percent commitment and, and actually to go, well, I can sit behind a computer right now and, and collaborate with a couple of writers and, and producers and, 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 um, and, and punch out some, some uh, some drafts of, of of stories and bits and pieces and it doesn't i think anything if anything it feeds your soul rather than yeah. takes of your soul if that makes sense yeah it's creative soul food yeah hey, I've got, know, I've got, those, those ebbs and flows i've important. got another question for you from an artistic space so my my main character matt ricks right in um the mm-hmm. fighting season and off reservation just just wondering I've, I've always wondered you know like james bond has got his drink is a martini shaken not stirred right so i'm just wondering what would matt rix's drink be if he could have like a certain drink that would be 
you know, everyone, he'd walk into a bar and there'd be, he'd walk in there and there'd be some bad guys over on the left there looking over him. They're sort of like swanky, yeah. swanky looking Spanish dudes. And he walks up yeah. to, to the bar and there's a, there's a good looking sort of like blonde lady who works for an intelligence service. And, he, and he's got to ask for a drink. What's he asking for? Well, I don't think he's asking for a white spirit. I don't think he's going to drink a martini. I, I think Matt Ricks is a, is a dark spirit kind of guy. Really? Not a tequila? And yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> is this a brand plug? I mean, are we... Uh, I'm just saying, we, you know, like, is there a sort of tequila maybe that he would drink? <laughs> Dan. Well, you know, I was... Uh, is, might be ahead of his time, you know, because I think Australians are really only just learning to drink tequila. If they were to drink uh, tequila, Australians, what tequila would they drink, do you think? They would definitely drink uh, Salento Organic Tequila, Graham oh. uh, Connolly, oh, uh, which is a little business I'm involved in. Oh, is uh, it? Which is, <laughs> which is very cool and going very well. S-O-L-E-N-T-O, Salento Organic Tequila. There you go. But... Uh, it's going good. It's got some great people behind it. And it's, mm. it's a one. It's a it's a it's a fun little ride. Okay, and, but Matt um, Ricks is a, is a is a is a brown spirit guy. In, uh, Come on then. What brown? What brown? What brown spirit is he drinking? Well, I reckon. Oh, I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's going to be a Bundy and Coke kind of guy. And I don't know if he's. As, I don't know if he's a Jack and Coke guy. So I don't know if it's a. If there's something something in that space, whether it is a. Mm. Maybe it's. Maybe it is a. Some kind of a rum, rum and coke, or kind of there's a because I think there's an earthiness to him, but he's also he's a, he's a clever cat, you know. He's a bit, there's a bit of I, I like to make his drink a point of difference, like you know, an that he's Irish not, whiskey, that he's maybe giving it a bit more thought. Irish whiskey, yeah. Like maybe is it a is he a ja, is he a Jamison and Dry Jamison kind of guy? and Dry, yeah. There you go. Yeah, balls, that might it? be that might be something in his because he's not as doesn't want to you know he doesn't want a fighting juice as much as a Bundy and Coke, no, but. But he's not a he's not a vodka soda guy either. Maybe like, Jamison and Dry. I feel like we can explore this further later. I think we can explore this. Look, I've be, I've given a lot of thought to to uh, to Matt Ricks. Mm, I used to race with Josh Ricks actually. There you go. And his wife Gemma Ricks is uh, is in uh, is in uh, was in Wicked the Musical, wonderful musical theatre producer. And then I used to have a boss called Matt Nix, who was the producer of APB. So that's why I just had to make sure I got that right. Um, well, you know that Matt Ricks uh, crea- is when you spell it all together, it's Matrix. That's very good, man. There you go. Hey, hey. There you go. That's Matrix. where I was going. It's the Matrix. It is the Matrix. Well, I'd like to explore the Matrix. I'd also like to explore how that Matrix could be made for television, mm. uh, which is a conversation that you and I should be having. Mm. Um, post podcasts because I just think the world of film is, is changing so rapidly. Have you thought about um, writing a book, Dan? Not yet. Um, still feel like I'm not finished, mm. you know, it'd be mm. a work in progress. Uh, so eventually maybe uh, I thought about maybe writing a book on yeah, just sort of my knowledge of, of health and fitness and, and, and how that's, how that has kind of aided my career in terms of, mm. You asked me earlier about triathlon and the importance of, of that, but what that taught me about discipline and, and the discipline and the rewards that come from hard work um, have, has probably served me the absolute best, mm. um, whereby triathlon and Ironman taught me that if you put in the work, you get the result. Mm. Um, oftentimes in the entertainment industry, that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, and so I could never reconcile it to, you know, well, it worked really hard, but I didn't get the job. Living with Robbie Williams. 
Uh, mate, I was I was twenty one years old. I was straight out of Neighbours. I moved to I moved to London to uh, to tour a music to do to do pantomime and then tour a musical. I toured Godspell the musical with Robbie's best mate uh, Jonathan Wilkes. Yeah. And uh, mate, there's not a lot to report except that uh, I was twenty one and they they took me in like a like a long lost stray puppy. And uh, and I did get to stay with them uh, in LA a couple of times and in, uh, in in London a couple of times and and they were they were both great great mates and great supporters and and uh, and that was a pretty pretty <laughs> cool time and and actually just just was going to catch up with them for the first time in a long time down at the Grand Prix in Melbourne but it got cancelled so what what happens when uh, you they were great years and you know to be to be twenty one. In, uh, yeah, what happens when you live with Robbie Williams stays in those years. What, what was that? <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about, mate. We just there was we played a lot of cards. We and I, and I shit you not, we played a lot of cards and we drank a lot of tea. Yeah, cool. Um, and, uh, amazing talent, that's isn't he? Truth, but no, good people, man. Good people. Oh, incredible! Even back then, he was the closest thing I think that generation had to Elvis. You know, yeah, wow. and the way that he is viewed in. The way that he is viewed in the UK and was was back then at the absolute height of his career, yeah. Just before he kind of um, moved to moved to Los Angeles, but yeah. you know that kind of rock DJ era and between Angels and Rock DJ and and um, and uh, feel and that kind of world that, that kind of time, mm. which I think was the late nineties, early two thousands, which I think when I was there, you know, he was he was the closest thing. He was a Yes, it was a single white male entertainer. Yeah, in in the way that in the greats, you know, like like Elvis was, you know, and I think it was kind of the it was the closest thing to that that we'd seen for a long did he, time. Did he in the write, way he could command an audience and command a presence? Did he write Angels himself? He was writing with Guy Chambers at the time, so I'm not sure if that was a uh, check that uh, Robbie and Guy or whatnot. But um, yeah, that was his, that was kind of one of his breakouts around that time. Yeah, and when you look at the the lyrics of it, you know, um, mm. I don't know. He, he's yeah, he's kind of special. That was that was his kind of cry. That was his cry out for life and change, and it was it was pretty pretty raw, primal kind of stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, and he wrote one about um, Marilyn Monroe as well, didn't he? He's, he's yeah. He's, he's a got he's got some he's got some talent. That kid. He might go okay. Yeah, he'll do all right. Um, what about the bill? Yeah, yeah, did you enjoy right. Did you enjoy doing the bill? And did you become? Were you almost a household name at one stage there in the UK? Do you think? Ooh, I I, I loved it. I was I, again. I was twenty one. I packed up straight out of neighbours. I went over and did just so right after that Robbie Williams time. I, I started on the bill because the producer of Producer of the bill was our theatre producer's brother, um, and they offered me a job, and and so I finished Godspell and moved into an apartment in South London and started on the bill, you know, and and that was actually when I got back into running because I was living right on Wimbledon Common and mm-hmm. and Richmond Park and down that part of London, so I was back running trails. I think actually, if it wasn't like surfing, body surfing the ocean my favorite lands land-based exercise would be trail running yeah and uh like and so i did a lot of running around around um mm. wimbledon richmond common mm. while i was on the bill um ran london marathon um ran a lot of halves actually around that time and and worked on the bill and i loved it you know again i was like 
I was like this pretty boy Aussie kid off Neighbours going into a pretty well-established TV show. And I, and I thought that I wasn't sure how they'd take that. And again, it was some of the younger cast that, that um, were a little bit resistant to having me there. But mm. then the older cast, like, um, well, like, uh, like June Ackland, like Trudy Goodwin and, and, and yeah, all the, right. the stalwarts that have been there, like Reg and, yeah. and Des and, and uh, Carver and, you know, have been like all those great 20, actors. Years, yeah. they, they loved, they'd all just come out and shot the, the show out at Bondi Beach, you know, and they loved Australia and they loved having an Australian man. So they were so welcoming. Yeah. Um, and no matter, I did, I did love it. Oh. And I loved that kind of couple of years in Australia. And then eventually, eventually one day I got in my car, I drove to the end of my street. It was the middle of summer. It was freezing. It was pissing down rain. The traffic was banked back left and right. I couldn't turn out of my street without sitting in a traffic jam. And I knew instantly that I was finished with London and I wanted to move home. Mm. And I moved home a week later. Yeah, right. And it was like, just one day I was like, I'm done with this. This yeah. is done. And I'd done a bit of theatre. I did two years on the bill. I did a bit of theatre. I travelled around and toured around a little bit. But I was mm. kind of like, I'm ready to go home. And I moved home uh, in 2005, maybe, right before the financial crash in the, in the UK. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, when I was there, the pound was paying $2.80 or something, or $2.90 Australian. And, yeah, why not? Um, I, I, did, I did a little, I, mean, I lost a little bit of that in that financial. I lost a lot of that actually in that financial crash but you know it was never about being over there and making money it was yeah. that was kind of my version of, of my gap year or my you know my, my year off and I went and lived in London for three years and worked and you know partied with my mates and just happened to have I had the couch that everybody came to sleep on yeah. instead of having to crash on a mate's couch yeah you know, that's just how it was and if there's if there's soldiers listening now um, whether they're infantry soldiers like I was or they're a different flavour altogether, it doesn't matter. But they're out there and they're listening to this and they're thinking about leaving the, the army in the future and, and they'd like to get into acting. What would you give them, you know, as a sort of... And, I mean, obviously they can't all just get out and suddenly become actors, but there might be someone out there with mm. real passion in it that might be like, I really want to pursue this. What advice would you give to, to those guys and girls? Um, I would... I would just say learn as much as you can, like uh, be a sponge, go and read as much as you can, read as many scripts as you can, watch as many films and television shows as you can, listen to podcasts from actors, writers, directors. There is a wealth of information at your fingertips in terms of teaching. Go and read the basics, go and learn, go and read Stanislavski, go and read all the... Larry, Larry Moss, David Mamet, whatever, Uta Hagen, like whatever style of acting coach. And there's a handful of really famous acting coaches, Lee Strasberg and all these sort of different, slightly different, different styles. Um, the Meisner technique, you know, you can go and learn as much as you can. Um, and then from there, start going and watching theatre, support local theatre, get into being in those circles, start yeah. watching, start talking to people, find find acting classes. That's what I did. I went and did acting classes after school. Mm. They exist. Be brave. Get out there mm. and don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. Are you, you know? are you gonna get you know, go and go and do it. Are you gonna get a few friends together? 
jump onto a Zoom and and do um make a TV show while you're all isolated? <laughs> you know what? I was actually thinking about doing a two-handed play on Instagram Live, like actually can't find a good two-hander and um and get on with. I was thinking about. I've got to speak to Luke Hemsworth about it, but I think there's some. Or even you know, if it's find a find a great performer and try and do do something like that, like a play reading on Insta Live or something like that. That's so awesome. Say, that would yeah. be amazing. I think mean, I think it'd be kind of fun. I mean, even we just even if someone just each day someone just nominates a play and we get on and we read it, you know. And yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know. So, yeah. but uh, yeah. Look, look to those anyone who's thinking about it, just do it, man. Just do it. Yeah. Just learn as much as you can. Mm. Get online; it's all at your fingertips, mm. and, and get in there and get your hands dirty. And, I, I don't um, know if you heard um, yeah. Joel Jackson last week tell me his secret for being resilient to no. Have you heard? What, is, what was his secret? No, I haven't. So um, last week's episode was a good one. I know you listen to him all the time, but fast forward to this mm. one. Um, so he said um, he goes down the local, well, not the local. He goes down to a coffee shop before he goes into a casting. And he walks in there and he goes, oh, hey, how are you? Um, hey, I'd really like a cup of coffee and I forgot my phone and forgot my money. So can I have a cup of coffee, please? And then they're like, well, no, you've got to pay. And then he'll be like, oh, okay. Okay, thanks. And, uh, <laughs> and just, <laughs> you know, and he just goes and goes and asks for a few different places for coffee so he can hear no. Um, <laughs> no, you can't have it. No, oh, he's a beautiful human, mate. And he said to me, "That's a really interesting. I haven't heard that." Yeah, it's a good one. And I, and and I'll ask you how you deal with rejection in a minute if you've ever had it. Um, and then the other thing he said that I loved was, you know, he's a six foot four, good looking bronzed Aussie with you know a shock of blondy yeah. coloured hair, and he's he's gone to yeah. he's gone to Los Angeles. He's been told, "Hey, you're perfect for this role. Come and try out for it." You know, and there's there's no one that can do what you can do and come in here. and And he walks in, and he and uh, there's 35 other people there who look exactly like him, but with better abs. <laughs> yep, 100 percent, mate. 100 percent. I had the same experience. I had exactly the same experience. I told exactly the same story. You're like, well, the real Joel Jackson. This is read this role, and it's like, this is it. This is me. And you walk in, there's 25 guys that look exactly like you in there yeah you know, oh shit and and for me that was i mean i i think i, I did something like 130 auditions before i got a, a job you know like wow. more i mean you know my agent and i were having a pretty robust conversation over there about what i was doing there why i was there you know what i mean what are we doing what we're we having a state of the union because i'm not working and why you know mm. and um he said, well, dude, I've, I've given you a hundred and he gave me the number, whatever it was, 136 auditions over four years. So I, I'm doing my job. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thanks, mate. And, and you realize that's, that's how long it takes. Um, so but I, I had a bit of a, I mean, I went through all that stuff the same way that Joel did. And you're like, what the fuck? And you realize eventually the lesson I learned is like, you've just got to stop trying to be anybody else. Stop trying to not be yourself because it's your essence. It's your human essence. It's your characteristic. It's your personality. It is going to be your uniqueness. And that's what's going to get you a job. Not your abs. Not whether you're taller than that guy, better looking than that guy, got better hair, worse hair, more tan, less tan, fucking whatever. Doesn't give a shit. Doesn't matter. Because you've got 35 guys who are all versions of you in the room, Mm. you know. You've got to that point. The fact that you haven't got to that point is incredible. The fact that you've had a career, 
got an agent, can go to America and get an audition, and they're going to get you in the room. Like you're already at like Amazing. level eight of, yeah. of Zelda, you know, whatever you're yeah. doing, Super Mario level, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know. And but my kind of my kind of um, I've been doing that for years and getting rejected and being rejected and this and no and so I went back and raced Iron Man. Fuck it, I'm going to go back and race an Iron Man. At least then I'm in control and in control of my destiny. Mm. So I went back and raced Roth, Roth in 2014. And uh, I got halfway through, I had a good swim, good bike. I'd have made a few mistakes, got halfway through the marathon. Wheels had fallen off. It's going to run a four, another four hour marathon. Mm. I don't really feel like doing that today. <laughs> yeah. And then I realized that I had this kind of Harajuku kind of epiphany moment. Harajuku? No. I don't use that word, but had this moment of clarity in the middle of it all. Like, why the hell am I still racing this sport when I've been so close to all these auditions, to all these getting these jobs, I've been getting out of the final two, the final three, and I'm still viewing that final two and three as rejection. When in actual fact, I'm not realizing how far I've come to actually get into the room, to get all those callbacks, to have those producer sessions, to go to the network, to come down, to sign a contract, to be in the final two or three for a role. I'm at the pointy end of the spear but I'm still not getting it. So I took a bit of a, a mental readjustment. I quit triathlon. I quit that race. I quit triathlon. I quit riding my bike. I started putting that 25 hours of effort into training that was into something other than my career. I started putting that into my career and I went and sought the best acting coach and the best voice coach. And I went and tried to put on 10 kilos instead of lose 10 kilos and suddenly reshaped my entire life to have success in that industry. Mm. All of, because so much is out of your control. If you're not nailing what is in your control, then you're failing. Yeah. Then you're letting yourself down. Yeah. And I think the entertainment industry has more things beyond your control than most. Mm. And, but if you're then walking into that audition unprepared or not mastering which is yours to own then i think you're letting yourself down and i and i kind of had this big epiphany at that point halfway through an, an iron man in germany mm. and so i came back and i changed that and i did my last series of dancing with the stars and three months later after making that decision on a levy of a marathon course in 36 degree heat in bavaria mm. i got my first job on an american tv series okay. um and you know five six years later i haven't stopped yeah. um can't run to save myself that 10 kilos too heavy to run 10k but i was like well all the auditions i'm going for are fbi agents navy seals whatever whatever so why the heck am i spending 25 hours a week running to get right. to 70 kilos when my camera is from the chest up why the fuck am i doing weights and building shoulders and neck and chest and back and because that's what's on camera and I'm five foot eight and 70 kilos. Yeah. Well, I need to look like I'm six foot one and a hundred kilos. And that's what I changed. And suddenly three years later, I'm a leading a military action series. Yeah. The best advice I was given with, with no, and this was from a wonderful acting coach in, in America. She was like, I'm designing my, I'm designing my, I'm redesigning my living room and my house. I'm remodeling my house and I've got this beautiful dining room. And I've painted all the walls and I've got the lights and I've got all the bits and pieces I need. And I've bought this um, beautiful big dining table 
I've got all the chairs and all the right chairs in the right places. And I've got the, the knives and the forks and I've got all the crockery and the cutlery and the candles and everything, but I just need one more chair just to complete it. And you go to the furniture store and you go through five, 10, 15 different chairs. And they all look good and they all feel good and they all do the same thing, but didn't quite work until you get like the one right chair and it finishes the piece and it matches everything else. And it looks like in the room and the room is perfected. She's the same in casting. These producers have got an entire room full of decisions they've made from set to story, to script, to people they've cast. They just need the right chair. And you might be a great, sturdy, reliable, comfortable, talented chair but if you don't quite match the all the work that's been done, you're just not the right chair. Mm. You're not a shit chair. You're just not the right chair for that mm. to complete that room. Mm. And when you realize that, you go, oh, it's not about me. You realize what part you are in the entirety of the, of the process. And that's, that's a nice realization to not take anything personally. Yeah. That's a pretty good piece of advice for a lot of things in life, really. Mm. Yeah, I like it, mate. Well, I think we maybe you know, we take a lot of we take a lot of things personally, where it's actually mm. it's not about you, man. Mm. And I was going to say mm. I'm going to wrap it up to to get some other stuff done today, but I want to ask you: Where can people find Dan McPherson? <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, in the lounge room. Uh, oh. Yeah, where can you find me? Uh, I'm uh, I'm on Instagram at Dan McPherson. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, at Dan McPherson. You love a good Twitter um, stoush, by the way. I love it. Look, I love it. It's it's something that we're unprecedented times. I mean, you'll you'll literally I'll be tweeting something very very funny, something about strike back, or just, just hammering the, the current president of the United States. <laughs> um, that's yeah. let's be honest, he's an easy target. So, uh, but that's you know, I, I just uh, I was always for many years I was just trying to. Just trying to toe the network line, you know. I was a product of coming up through network television and being on network contracts, mm. where it was mm. in my best interest to be inoffensive, mm. to be mm-hmm. um, shiny, happy floor guy, clean shaven, mm. and you, and uh, and get my job done, smile, do Dan McPherson. And, and get paid. And it took me, mate. It took me a long time to undo. That was, you know, that was the first ten or fifteen years of my career, and it took me. Um, a bit of time to, to realize that, that I'd grown out of that and that wasn't me anymore and try, mm. sort of try, my, try and find my authenticity and my, my voice. And, and uh, I mean, maybe I've swung a little bit too far the other way, but uh, yeah. yeah, man, I'm, I'm in a good place, man. I'm, I'm about to hit 40 and I'm, I'm feeling mm. good and I'm feeling, uh, I'm, I'm feeling like a, I, mean, I know who I am now. It takes a mm. while to get your head around that. Mm. And you got any advice for all the people listening that are self-isolating, mate? They're all at home, locked in their houses. Or a yeah. message? Um, yeah, you know what? I think I think Watch Strike Back. Uh, you know what? It's even uh, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. And that is look out for each other. Mm. Even though we're isolated, I think it's important to stay connected. Um, mm. never before in history have we had the ability to stay as connected as we can. Mm. Um, and right now. Right now, for many, many people around the world who haven't had the benefit of perhaps being trained to deal with things like this or haven't come from a sporting or military background where 
you have the discipline and, and self-awareness and knowledge to, to understand how to weather something like this. There's a lot of people out there who are really fucking scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your only source of, of information is coming by the nightly news or Facebook, then you're probably even more scared than most. Yeah. Um, so my advice right now is know when to turn off the computer, know when to turn off the telly, mm. breathe, relax. It's going to be okay. And for the biggest takeaway I want is check on your friends, check on your friends and family, reach out. I mean, I hate to say it, but, but this is a, this is a terrible time for those suffering with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. People are losing jobs, losing income. You know, that's when, when unfortunately, you know, those numbers of suicides skyrocket mm-hmm. in a time like now, reach out, reach out to your friends, uh, make sure they're okay. You know, and um, it, it's a tough time for a lot of people. And uh, I would just say humanity, it's time, it's time for friendship. It's time for humanity. Yeah. And, you know, I, I cracked the shits in traffic the other day and I was like, no, nah, you know what? This is a time where just, just to be less selfish, mm. more selfless, mm. um, check in on your friends. You know, it's, it's a tough time. All right, Dan McPherson, thanks, mate, on that note. Always a pleasure, my friend. Never a chore. And uh, I look forward to doing part two in the near future, my friend. Let's do something yeah, next. Let's right. do something next right. week. Let's get Whatever. a few people on it. Let's get Mark Weber, Luke Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about something. We'll other. do our we'll do our read, mate. We'll get you a role. We'll get you a role. Hey, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. I like that idea. I still reckon that's the funniest thing. A ever. round table. We'll funniest. get a couple of topics. We'll get a round table. The funniest thing you've ever done to me is when we went to a bar somewhere, I think it was in Noosa, and I was standing next to you, I was completely oblivious. I was looking at my phone and the, the bartender came over and says, what are you having, lads? And you went, um, I'm going to have just a, a beer. What do you want, honey? <laughs> like this to me. And I was like, uh. It's <laughs> 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 uh, a good looking rooster, Graham, finally. What do you want, honey? <laughs> I just met on Grinder. Um, all right. Hey, man. Oh, brother. Great to chat. Great to chat. And uh... (laughs) see you. All right, mate. I'm going to go and uh, get my one hour of daylight in, one hour of sunshine in outside. All right, mate. See See you soon. Bye, Bye, brother. Bye. Bye, mate. Thanks.